This episode contains graphic language as well as descriptions of violence and traumatic historical events that may be upsetting to some, especially our indigenous listeners. Discretion is advised. Back in the 1940s, long before Marcus Ruiz Evans was born, Fresno was home to two brothers named Patrick and Candido Alvelando Vasquez Vega. Part Yaqui, Shoshone, and Mexican, the brothers worked as laborers in the cotton fields surrounding the city. Here's Patrick. We picked all day long from 8 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock in the evening. We picked cotton, you know, with the sacks and everything. And that's how I spent my summers with Grandpa, you know, teaching me hard work. The days were long. But each night, the brothers came home to a household full of what they loved most in the world, music. Grandpa was a famous guitar player back in Mexico years ago when he was younger. He said, when you're tall enough and you can reach that guitar, you can have it, you know, because that was his pride and joy. He played all the time. So I stood on a chair and I brought it down. (laughs) And he got home that evening, I was playing it, you know, and he gave it to me. So that's how I started on the guitar. When the brothers were in their early 20s, they moved to Los Angeles to pursue their dream of becoming professional musicians. They formed a band playing top 40 hits, Alvelando on the guitar and Patrick on the bass. Most of the popular clubs at the time were on the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood, but they quickly learned that performers with names like Vasquez Vega just weren't welcome. You know, it was a big thing at the time they didn't hire any non-white acts on, on, on the strip. It was all strictly white. We went to audition for Bill Gazzari on La Cienega, and Bill looked at us and said, you're not Italian. <laughs> I said, no, but we can be. <laughs> he said, well, from now on, you're going to be Pat Vegas and you're going to be Lolly Vegas. <laughs> Pat and Lolly complied. They dropped the Vasquez from their names, and Vega became Vegas, all to become more passable as white. I wanted to work. Yeah, you could have called me anything, and I would have played, you know. So I don't give you called me Jackrabbit, I would have done it, you know. <laughs> For a while, they played along. They hid their roots. They worked hard to become as versatile as they could. They even did a stint playing surf music. They wanted classical music, we'd play some classical. If they wanted Latin, we'd play Latin. If they wanted country, we'd play country. I played a lot of country gigs, by the way. For a lot of indigenous people at the time, that was the only choice. Assimilate, fit in, or be left behind. From Interval Presents and Awfully Nice, this is The Last Resort. I'm Shutezkat. Episode 3, After the Gold Rush. For many Americans, the history of California begins with the gold rush, the mass migration of prospectors into the region that started in 1848. Here's journalist Pat Morrison. So the gold rush brought in people by the tens of thousands who thought, this is the place, Eureka, the Greek word which is on the state flag of California, meaning I have found it. There was, as far as the white gold rush settlers were concerned, nothing here before. The truth is, California has been inhabited for thousands of years, 
It's the ancestral homeland of more than 100 native tribes. But then, the colonists arrived. They came for different reasons, to spread Christianity or to make their fortune. But in the end, they all needed one thing, land. In this episode, we're gonna tell you the story of how that land was taken, what it meant for the people who originally lived there, and how today, those people are fighting to get that land back. The California dream, while it's been a dream for Europeans, it has been basically a nightmare for California Indians because it's been built off our backs and off our land. Calegs and supporters often present an image of California as different from the rest of the United States. It has its own values and culture, and it rejects the conservative ideas embodied by people like Donald Trump. But beneath the surface of the California dream is a history that is a lot darker than most people know. And Cal Exit is going to have to choose to reckon with that dark history or repeat it. In the spring of 1846, a U.S. military captain named John Fremont led an expedition into the wilderness of Northern California, near the present-day town of Redding. At the time, California was controlled by Mexico, but Fremont was a believer in manifest destiny, this idea that the United States was destined by God to rule all of the land in North America. California would belong to the U.S. soon enough. His stated mission was just to survey the land, but he had been armed by the U.S. Department of War. Fremont got word that a band of native people were camping nearby. Were they a threat? He didn't wait to find out. He and his men traveled to the Sacramento River and surprised a group of Wintu natives living along the banks. Fremont's men attacked pinning the Wintus against the water, firing on them with rifles, and then butchering the survivors with axes. With nowhere to run, many desperate women and children fled into the river where they drowned. Witnesses later estimated that as many as 900 people were murdered in a single afternoon. Fremont's attack was the first recorded American massacre of California natives, but it was just the beginning. Here's Jolie Proudfit, the chair of American Indian Studies at California State University, San Marcos. The first two decades of the American occupation, um, the native population of California plummeted by 90%. Bounties were paid for the scalps of men, women, and children. None of this was done in secret. The first governor of California, Peter Burnett, literally made genocide the state policy saying, quote, a war of extermination will continue to be waged between the two races until the Indian race becomes extinct, end quote. That wasn't some offhand comment, by the way. That was his State of the State address delivered at the state capitol in front of the California Congress. People are often familiar with the image of the angel pointing west. This notion of manifest destiny may have worked well for white settlers, but for... Um, the original inhabitants of this land, this was outright brutality and outright murder. As for Captain John Fremont, the man responsible for the Sacramento River Massacre, yeah, he was elected California's first senator in 1850. In 1856, Fremont was nominated as the first presidential candidate of a new political party. 
the Republicans. The second Republican presidential candidate four years later was Abraham Lincoln. This history of genocide and land theft laid the foundation for our entire country, including California. In the decades that followed, most of the natives who survived were sent to reservations, often poor, isolated lands far from population centers. The result was that indigenous people were increasingly invisible in the state. Without them in the way, California could grow as big as it could dream. Here's Pat Morrison again. The demographic of California was Native American, and then the Spanish, and then the Mexican, and finally then the Yankees, the white people who came to California and who molded and shaped the image and the message of California into what they wanted it to be at the expense of all of the people who had been here before, all of the marginalized people. They were essentially disappeared in the service of this idea, this fantasy of California. Surf dudes with attitudes Kind of groovy Laid back moves Sky above, sand below Good vibrations Feeling mellow The California Gold Rush helped to usher in a concept known as the California Dream that California was a promised land where you could do and be anything. The California dream has always, even before the gold rush, I think, conjured the notion of reinvention and self-invention. This is a place where your past didn't matter, your future is what mattered, your aspirations and your abilities. That is the quintessential aspect of the American dream, and I think California crystallizes it. wonderful treat for me tonight to have heard and seen the Beach Boys. And as you can hear in the background, the girls are still hollering for them. By the 1950s and 60s, California's population was exploding, envied around the world for its beaches, its lifestyle, and its optimism. It was an image made popular by surf rock groups like the Beach Boys. But more people meant that California needed more housing, more highways, more farms, more land. And the government, they knew exactly where to find it. Here's Jolie Proudfit again. We talked about the American period with the gold rush, with an influx of, you know, people coming from all over the world to get rich with gold. And then the second wave was in the 1950s where people were moving from the Midwest to California. So what did they need? More land. How did they get it? Termination. In 1953, Congress passed a new policy towards Native people. It was known as termination. Termination did exactly what it said. It called for the end of all recognition of tribes and the full assimilation of Native people into American society. Reservations would be dissolved and the land sold off. It was a different kind of genocide, a cultural one. And once again, it was all about the land. The Termination Act terminated tribes from existing. 
So they were no longer tribal governments. They no longer had citizens. They no longer had tribal lands. These individual tribes no longer were Native American. This was another period of time for the federal government to take more Indian lands through what they called liberating us, through terminating our political legal status. This pattern of genocide, land theft, and erasure is woven throughout the story of California. Natives pushed off their reservations immediately ran into another problem, redlining. Racist policies that restricted where non-whites could live. In Los Angeles, for example, if you weren't white, you couldn't live in up to 95% of the properties in the city. This didn't just impact Native people, of course. In L.A., Black Americans were segregated into communities like Watts and Compton. Residents faced underfunded schools, few job prospects, and an aggressive over-policing of their communities. On August 11th, 1965, the Beach Boys were in Hollywood recording Pet Sounds, their most celebrated album. But 20 miles away in Watts, the tension between the police and the Black community finally reached a breaking point. began with the arrest by white officers of the California Highway Patrol of two young Negroes, one on a charge of drunk driving, the other his brother, his passenger. Their mother, who lives nearby, came to the scene. There was an argument. There was a scuffle. By then, a crowd of several hundred Negroes had gathered, and the story of police brutality quickly spread through the community. This was the Watts Uprising, sometimes referred to as the Watts Riots. Six days of protests by black residents that were met with the deployment of nearly 16,000 police and National Guard. All majority black neighborhoods in LA were put under curfew. By the time it was all over, nearly 4,000 people had been arrested and dozens had been killed, mostly shot by cops. Those were the ugly early hours of this morning as control of a sort was finally imposed. This evening, Los Angeles remains hot, quiet, tense, and dangerous, and 28 people are dead. In the 1840s, Americans imagined California as this untapped wilderness rich with gold and all you had to do was get there and claim your share. In the 1950s and 60s, California was sold as a land of endless summer, a place where you could get a great job, build the future, maybe even get famous. CalExit today is selling a version of that same dream. That dream, that illusion of California is only possible because of the land that was taken and the violent histories that are hidden. As a kid, Marcus perceived racism as something that happened somewhere else. And today, he believes that many of the problems that afflict the U.S aren't actually California problems. We're just guilty by association. America's going downhill. America doesn't have your values. California values and American values are going to only increasingly diverge as time goes on. So better to have a separation. But just as California is surfing in hot rods, it's also the Watts uprising. It's striking gold and it's genocide. How you experience the California dream has a lot to do with who you are and what you look like. It's a dream that was only ever meant for some, and certainly not for a guy like Patrick Vasquez Vega. 
You know, it's not, it's not, it's, this California dream thing is not about me. And, it's, and the way it sits now and the way it's, it's, it's been established, the way I've learned and seen it, it's, it's, it's not established for me. Throughout the 50s and 60s, even after changing their name, the Vegas brothers struggled to break through with their music. To get by, they found work as session musicians and songwriters, helping to create hits for other artists. And along the way, they had to deal with all kinds of racist bullshit. We were driving across Texas, you know, to, from gig to gig, you know. And uh, we pull into this one restaurant and just sit down in the back and we're ordering food. And all of a sudden, these two guys walked in, white guys walk in. They checked us out and then they walked out. And then about 20 minutes later, coming in with about 10 guys. They wanted trouble. I couldn't afford to have one of the guys hurt. So we uh, slipped out the back, jumped in the cars and took off. And they chased us, you know, but, but yeah, we had a lot of that. Nothing was gonna change the fact that we were Native American, that you know, we weren't white. So, so there was a lot of prejudice. All through this time, something was eating at Pat. He was tired, unfulfilled. So one day I, 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 I told a lie and I said, that's it. I'm through playing with ungrateful people and, and, and clubs and I'm just, I'm just sick of it. I wasn't, getting any, uh, I, I wasn't getting any truth out of it. I wasn't getting any satisfaction. I mean, I wasn't really doing anything for myself or doing anything for us. You know, we were doing it for everybody else, and, 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 and I, I wasn't getting any joy out of it at this point. The years of struggle were weighing on Pat. But one night on stage, he had a breakthrough. One day I got up there and played bass. And I thought all of a sudden, I heard this guitar player, I heard this guitar going, playing these long stretch notes and loud, I mean, just crazy. I turned my head and it was Jimmy. The musician who had joined Pat on stage was Jimi Hendrix, debatably one of the greatest guitarists of all time, who also happened to be part Cherokee. He loved what we were doing. He loved how we played. He just loved the way I played bass. He's the one that said, man, you guys need to explore your roots, man. I'm part Indian, he says. He says, I wish I could use mine. And I said, that's a good idea. And so we went on and pursued that and just went sky high with that. And so a short time later, in a CBS Records office, a new kind of band was formed. Yeah, so we were sitting at CBS Studios and the secretary was had her fingers on the typewriter and said, all right, who's, what's the name of the group? And I had this little piece of paper in my wallet and I took it out of my wallet and I unwrapped it like that real tiny piece of paper. <laughs> And I said, Redbone. And she said, Redbone. What is that? It's uh, a name for Native American who's part Native American. They're half breed. Instead of calling them half breed, they, you call them Redbone. And she says, she typed it right out. <laughs> that was it. Now known as Redbone, Pat and Lolly didn't shy away from putting their background at the forefront of their music. They released their first album in 1970, followed by three more, until, in 1973, they dropped the song that would define their careers. 
Come and Get Your Love was an international hit, and there was no mistaking Redbone's heritage. From their hairstyles to their wardrobe, their true identities were finally on full display. Being indigenous is the only truth I know. I want to be able to play from my roots, you know. And people all over the world have accepted it and appreciated because the honesty is there and you can hear it. Come and Get Your Love has become a timeless classic and it found new life in 2014 when it was featured in the opening credits of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy. Redbone's success was a game changer for native representation in pop culture. Here's PJ Vegas, Pat's son, and a musician in his own right. Come and Get Your Love, man, did amazing things. It was the first Native American rock band to reach top five on Billboard charts. And it's just something for our people to really identify ourselves to and to kind of just show, like, we're here. Like, you may think that we're not here, but look, this is Come and Get Your Love. These, these are our people. We didn't see any of us on TV. We, you know, we never saw any of us in the music industry performing next to the greats. And there was a thing called, you know, spaghetti westerns back in the day, and they were huge in my father's era, and it was Italians playing Native Americans. So there wasn't really anyone that they could look to to have an example of what was possible. So when my father and my uncle did that, that's the biggest accolade, you know what I mean, is to inspire. PJ's most recent project is called Native State of Mind. His dad plays bass on most of it. For centuries, Native people have lived as second-class citizens in their own homelands. They were killed in a state-sponsored genocide, they were enslaved and forced onto reservations, and finally, they were pressured to assimilate. But by the 1960s, a new movement was underway to fight back, to reclaim what was taken from Native people, our culture, our rights, and our land. It's known as Red Power. Today, that idea lives on in part through a movement called Land Back. They stole the land, but they couldn't take our spirit. Shut this up. Shut this up. They fear the end of their world, but they forget we are building a future that belongs to us all. We are the ones our ancestors prayed for. We are the land. We are the land. We are the land. We are the land. Here's Jolie Proudfit again. So the Land Back movement is really just putting front and center what Native people always have wanted. It's our ability to be self-determined on our own lands and our homelands. We lost millions of acres of land that we have not been able to get back. And we want to have our own political status with our own language, with our own customs and tradition. This is restitution. There's never going to be reconciliation without a return of the land. Landback offers us a vision of what the future for Native people could look like. This song was the first single off my last album. I wrote it in support of the movement. Sign the Constitution with some bloody hands. Fuck your business plan. It's our people's land. 
Marcus and Lewis have pitched a new dream for California, a place that's more inclusive and just than the United States. But at the same time, it kind of just feels like a continuation of the system that brought so much misery in the first place. So why would any native Californians support the Cal Exit cause? Well, to their credit, Marcus and Lewis have come up with a proposal. But they coming straight for the land, for the place where we stand, so we taking it all back. Well, the plan to break California off from the rest of the United States is back with an interesting new twist. The leaders of CalExit have announced a new version of their scheme to create an independent California. In this, all federal lands in the state, which is about half of all of California, will be returned to American Indian tribes. Marcus Ruiz Evans is co-founder of CalExit and always game enough to come on our show. And we appreciate that. He joins us tonight from Fresno. Marcus, thanks a lot for coming on. You know, the best thing to do for Native American people would be to give them back all of the land and everybody who's not Native would leave and then petition to become an immigrant. Obviously, that's not going to happen. So what we did at CalExit was say, what's the best thing that we could do that's not going to fix genocide, isn't going to fix everything, not make it all perfect, but what's the biggest leap that we could make in the right direction? And we felt that giving over half of California and basically uh, the American control part to native people who actually own the land would at least be a step in the right direction. Here's an interesting fact about California. Almost 50% of the land in the state is owned by the federal government. Under Marcus and Lewis's plan, after CalExit, all of that land would be turned over entirely to native people. Meaning that CalExit wouldn't just create a new California nation, it would also create other native-led countries at the same time. It's honestly a pretty radical proposal. Here's Marcus. So when you talk to the indigenous tribes here, which we had before we announced that, we knew that they would love it because it was like, hey, you were pushed off your land and killed. You're going to get it all back. So we knew we were going to pick up some allies and pick up some traction. And we also knew it was the right thing. And as far as do we really believe it, I wrote about it in my book in 2012 before we ever got famous, before I ever knew Lewis. So I always believed in this idea and that's documented. So what should Native people think about Marcus and Lewis and CalExit's offer? Pat Vegas, for one, kind of likes the idea. Uh, that'd be wonderful. I think that would be a good gesture of, of, of humanity uh, from America. Uh, and, and California would be beautiful. On one hand, land return is something that we've dreamt of and fought for for decades. Here's Julie Proudfit again. The largest landowner in the West is still the federal government. So there are many lands that the federal government owns that can be returned quite easily to the tribal nations um, in those areas for them to manage for themselves, for their people, for their future. But on the other hand, there are plenty of reasons to be skeptical about CalExit's promises. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. We've had progressive, liberal, good-hearted, people trying to tell American Indians what's in our best interests. That hasn't worked out for us. Let's just say that CalExit actually happened, and Marcus and Lewis follow through on their promise to give the land back. How would it work? The federal lands in California aren't all connected. Would we have dozens or possibly hundreds of tiny countries scattered across the region? Second, CalExit isn't giving back Beverly Hills or San Francisco. The lands owned by the federal government are mostly undeveloped. Finally, 
A lot of the land Calexit is pledging to return is currently used by other people, some of whom are fighting their own battle for control. In fact, there's another secession movement in California besides Calexit, and it's growing fast. But they're not trying to break away from the United States. They're trying to leave California itself. Here in the rural counties of Northern California, some residents say it's time for a new declaration of independence. They want to separate from California and create a 51st state, the state of Jefferson. There's this big divide, and it's not just COVID, and it's not just politics, and it's not just the state of Jefferson. It's just all mixed up. This is a complete, unequivocal overthrow of the government. I think they're looking for a civil war. I mean, I really do. I think they're looking for an excuse to start using weapons. That's next time on The Last Resort. The Last Resort is an Interval Presents original production from Awfully Nice. From Interval Presents, the executive producers are Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Awfully Nice are Jesse Burton and Katie Hodges. Written and produced by Jesse Burton and Dana Balut. Associate producer is Suzanne Gaber. Project management by Kadi Kamakate. Editing, sound design, and mix by Nick Cipriano and Kiana McClellan of Bang Audio Post. Original music by my boy, Matawai Yuhi, and me, Shutezka. Theme song by me, Shutezgod, and Sweet Sound. Fact-checking by Lauren Vespoli. Script consultation by William Bauer. Operations lead is Sarah Yu. Business development lead is Sheffi Alenswig. And marketing lead is Samara Still. Special thanks to Cecily Mesa-Martinez. I'm your host, Shutezgod. For a full list of the sources used in this episode, please check the show notes. Make sure to follow, rate, and review The Last Resort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I run with the wolves, we run through the woods, we run where we won't.